0: Well, this morning we start Luke chapter 17, so go ahead and turn there, Luke 17. As you're turning there, just want to comment on uh, a little bit what we're going to be talking about. One of the themes that is, is clear throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, cover to cover as you go through the Scriptures, is that God's grace is what many will refer to as scandalous, God's scandalous grace grace that word scandalous means it's outrageous it's incredible it's it's unthinkable it's hard to get our minds around how gracious god is in fact paul in ephesians 1 says that he lavishes his grace i love that expression he lavishes his grace upon us god is gracious he forgives sinners he washes them clean. Scripture tells us that he counts sinners as righteous. You look through the stories from the Bible, and you see that God uses prostitutes to further his redemptive plan. He chooses adulterers and murderers as a part of Christ's redemptive line. He awakens a terrorist spiritually, And sends him to preach the gospel and write letters that we have in the New Testament. And all along he says, I forgive you for everything. And he means everything. And so what does that mean for us? If God's grace is that gracious, how do we respond to that? How ought we to respond to a grace like that? Well, let's look at four verses in Luke chapter 17 to help us at least in some ways talk about that. Luke 17, beginning with verse 1. If you wouldn't mind standing as I read. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's pray again. Father, we love you, Lord. We love you. We don't express that well so often. We love you. We're so grateful for your grace. Where would we be without your grace? We know the answer to that, and it terrifies us. And at the same time, fills us with joy because you have been gracious. So we praise you and we thank you. And help us, I pray, Lord, throughout this text to not take our eyes off of your grace. Speak to us, help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Jesus is speaking to, it says, his disciples. And he says, temptations to sin are sure to come. Now we know that, right? We feel that, we live in the midst of that. Temptations to sin are sure to come. We live in a fallen and broken world. Temptations abound. If we're honest, we we don't even escape temptation coming into a worship service like this, where we come for a purpose, to focus our attention on the Lord, to sing praises to Him, to respond to His greatness, to His goodness, to hear His word read and expounded upon it's why we're here, and yet even coming into a worship service, we don't escape temptation. A song can be sung. We may be moving our lips or not. A song about His grace, maybe a song about His holiness, or maybe it's during the sermon and temptation knocks on our heart. And we're distracted away from thoughts about the Lord, and maybe we begin to Uh, Harbor a bitterness or struggle with lust or think prideful thoughts. We live in a broken world. We are sinful people. And Jesus says, Temptations to sin are sure to come. The world is full of snares. And in that, we are so grateful for grace, so thankful for His grace because we are broken. We are helpless apart from him. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but, Jesus says, woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations are certain to come. They're going to come. You're going to be tempted. But woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations often come through people. Jesus is saying, Don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block to other people striving to make Jesus their joy and their treasure. Don't get in the way of that. Don't create a stumbling block for that. Don't be the cause of other people's sinning. Don't be the temptation. Don't be what lures them away from the Lord. He's saying this to his disciples. Don't do this. Don't be the cause of the temptation. Don't you lead other believers into sin. Now for about 2,000 years, there's been a discussion that's gone on surrounding grace because of how gracious God is. What does it mean for the saved if God is so gracious? And that discussion will go, A little bit like this. God is glorified in his grace. So the more he forgives, the more glory he receives. So are we then to continue in sin? That's the way Paul words it, right? In Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? We can say it differently sometimes. Maybe we don't sound like Paul. Maybe we say it like this. It's okay. You're human. God will forgive you. He promised he would. You're free. You're free to do whatever you want. How do we respond to grace? Now, here's, here's the thing. I never, ever, ever want to preach in such a way that diminishes in any way the grace of God. I'm certain I do. I'm certain I live that way at times. I'm certain I think that way. I'm certain I preach that way at times. I never want to. I never want to say or think or do anything that diminishes the grace of God. God's grace is unthinkable. It's unthinkable how gracious He is to look upon me and all of my sin and say, there is no condemnation for you, Tony. Not because of you. You're a sinful, wretched person. But because of my Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did on your behalf, you're free. You are totally free. Sin is gone. Condemnation gone. I never want to say anything that diminishes that. His grace is incredible. His grace is unthinkable. You and I in Christ are completely free. But that doesn't mean that we ought to put God to the test or be a temptation to others. Paul says in response to the question, are we to continue in sin so that, make, so that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. And then he says, how? How can you who have died to sin still live in it? In other words, how would it be possible for you to even desire to do that, to diminish grace in that way? You've died to sin. How can we look at the grace of God and disregard the cost and the love and redemption and the fellowship we now have and casually do what nailed Jesus to the cross? Paul says, how how could you? How could you who died to sin still live in it? Temptations will come, but Jesus says, "Don't, don't be the avenue through which they come. Our response to grace and the absolute, complete freedom that we have in Christ ought not to be to take advantage of it sinfully, but to take advantage of it worshipfully. We can take advantage of grace because for the first time in our lives, we are able to worship We couldn't before. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not please God. But in His grace, He's freed us. So why would we take advantage of His grace to sin against Him, rather than taking advantage of His grace to glorify and worship the Lord? We've been made alive. Paul says in Galatians 6, Thirteen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to lead others into sin. Don't be the avenue of temptation, but love and serve one another. He goes on, verse 2, It would be better for him person who leads others into temptation. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That is a vivid picture. Jesus is making his warning very firm, very clear here. Remember, he's saying this to disciples. He He said to his disciples, Woe to the one through whom they come. Don't do this. Think of a millstone. A millstone was this large, heavy stone that they used to uh, crush or grind grain. You get the picture here. It's a horrible thought. Have a millstone, this heavy stone. Hung around your neck and to be cast into the sea. You're just sinking and sinking and sinking until you finally reach the bottom, no hope of coming up. It would be better, Jesus says. Why would he say that? Why would he say it would be better for this horrible, terrible thing to take place on this earth? than for you to lead one of these little ones away. First of all, because that's not what believers do. Believers don't tempt and lead young believers away from the Lord. People who get grace don't turn around and lead others into sin. Repentant people don't respond by tempting others to sin. So there should be a concern about salvation. The terrible thought, Jesus is saying, of a rope and a millstone and the sea is nothing compared to the lake of fire that's waiting for those who do not know Jesus. But even for the believer, even for the believer who is blindly and shamefully leading others into sin, and that should sound really weird to us. You should hear me say that and think, wait, <laughs> the believer who's leading other people into sin, that doesn't make sense. That's what Jesus is saying here too, okay? That doesn't make sense. That's really weird. But even for them, Jesus gives this example. Why? Why? Because God's chastening, even loss of reward, are a terrible thought. But even more, the, pot- the potential, the possibility that you would lead another away from unbelief in Jesus Christ is a horrible thought, a frightening thought. Now, who are these little ones that he speaks of here than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The believers, likely young believers, Matthew 18, 6 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Matthew 18, 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So don't, don't be the avenue of temptation. Don't be the the reason that they are led to sin. Rather, we ought to be building one another up in love. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Build one another up in love. Speak the truth in love. That's that's what we ought to do in response to grace to brothers and sisters in Christ. Build one another up in love, encouraging one another to press on toward good works. And what is pleasing to the Lord So Jesus goes on, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Don't just casually walk through life. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." That word holy means set apart. Be set apart. Be distinct. Be different from the world. And he sets it apart from your former manner of living. Don't go back to those old ways. Don't go back to what you used to do. You've been set free. You've been delivered from that. So as the Lord says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Seek that. Seek holiness in him. Pay attention to yourselves. Now, how can we pay attention to ourselves? We think of how you do that in everyday life. How do you pay attention to yourself? In the mornings, we tend to, before we leave the house, at some point, glance in the mirror. We look in the mirror. What do I look like? Is there something uh, that's wrong with what I see that's going to be an embarrassment or not be presentable to the people that I come in contact with? Is there something that this mirror reveals in me that I need to adjust before I leave? In the same way, spiritually, we ought to be looking in the mirror of the Word. We have Moses and the prophets and the Gospels and the letters. We have to be looking and listening and learning and growing. James writes in James 1. Begin with verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once forgets what he, and, and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What's he saying there? In the same way that I look in a mirror and I look to see what is wrong and the things that I can do something about, I attempt to do something about. In the same way, we ought to be looking in the mirror of the word. And as the word reveals things to us, things that don't fit with 1 Peter chapter 1, things that scream at us, you're not walking in holiness. You're not responding to God's grace in a way that says, He is holy then we ought to adjust. We ought to repent, trusting in that grace to forgive us and to help us, to empower us. Not just walk away forgetting what we saw in the mirror and not caring. In the same way that as we look in a mirror, we see things and we want to correct those things because we don't want to be embarrassed when we come and encounter certain people. We don't want to be ashamed when we see Jesus. That's what John writes in 1 John 2, 28. Little children, abide in him. Remain in him. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Confidence because of his grace. Not our works of righteousness, but his grace gives us Confidence and unashamed because we responded to that grace. So pay attention to yourselves. God's grace leads us to live for him. To pay attention to ourselves so that we please him with our lives rather than living in habitual sin and even tempting others to sin. That's not what grace leads us to do. Grace sets us free to do otherwise. But also grace transforms how we treat other people. Rather than leading others into sin, grace causes us to lead others out of sin or away from sin. What Jesus says here in verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, what does that word rebuke mean? It means this. It's a strong disapproval. It's a strong disapproval. Now, why would we want to do that? As a person who struggles with the fear of man and wanting to be liked by other people, this doesn't fit nicely into my plan for living. Because people don't like being rebuked. So, why would we do that? And the answer, again and again and again, is because of grace. We ought not to respond to a brother or sister in sin by ignoring it, hoping that it'll just get better or someone else will take care of it. We don't respond by saying, It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And we understand that God is holy and sin is terrible and out of love, love for God and love for that brother or sister in Christ, we rebuke. We tell them, "This this is not your identity. This is not who you are. This is not what God freed you to be. This is not what Jesus died to deliver you to. This is not who you are. How can you who died to sin still live in it? And we do that out of love, Paul writes in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins rebuke him. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So this is a response to the grace of God. The grace God has shown us, and it's a desire to see your brother restored. It's not a desire to see them humiliated because we're talking to other people about it, we go to them, Jesus says, because we love them. And the goal, as you read further in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, is always restoration. That's the aim. That's the goal. We want to see this brother, this sister restored in their relationship with God, because that is the most joyful circumstance that they could possibly be in. Whatever they're doing, whatever sin they're committing is not going to provide for them what they really desire. But God can. He's the joy that they're looking for. And so our desire out of love for Him and love for them is to see them restored to Him. And so that's the goal in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. As you go through that text, it's it's restoration, restoration, restoration to see them repentant and restored with the Father. We want God to be glorified and we want people to be pleasing to Him. And so we are willing to rebuke because of God's grace for the sake of their fellowship with the Lord. We want them to be restored. He goes on after that. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in one day, turns to you, I repent, forgive him. Now, this is hard, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not keep a record of wrong, but we do. We tend to, we're tempted to, Where does this kind of forgiveness come from? Seven times in one day. You go to, to Matthew 18 and it's... Peter says to him, should I, should I forgive? Seven times? That was a big deal. For him to say that was a big deal because the Pharisee said three. If you can do three, you're great. Peter's like, he's up in the ante. Should we do seven? Jesus says, I don't have to say seven times. I would say 70 times 7. Now those that, among us that are pharisaical, instantly pull out the notepad and start a tab, right? And so, we're getting to 70 times 7, and we figure out how many times we have to forgive this person, and then we're done. And of course, that's not what Jesus is saying there, it's not what he's saying here. Be forgiving. Forgive, and forgive, and forgive, and forgive, because that's God's grace. That's exactly what God did and does for you and for me. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so if he repents, Jesus says, forgive. And if he repents, forgive. Grace from God does not lead us to harbor bitterness toward others. It frees us to forgive. You think about this picture, seven times in one day, how long, at what point are we tempted in that one day to question the genuineness of their repentance? Third time? Fourth? When do we begin to question, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm not going to see you again today, We're tempted to to question, is this repentance even genuine? But Jesus says, forgive, forgive, forgive. Why? Because you have been forgiven. In Matthew 18, in verses 21 through 35, is the story of the unforgiving servant. It's a great parable. I would encourage you to go and read through it this week But in that story of the unforgiving unforgiving servant, a servant owes a very large amount of money to the king. He doesn't have it. It's time for him to pay up. And so he begs the king for patience and mercy since the king was going to have him and his family sold into slavery to pay his debt. And out of pity, the scripture tells us, the king forgives his entire debt. He's not just patient with him, he's gracious. He forgives it all. You're forgiven. Go. But what do we see that the servant who's just been forgiven all of this great amount of debt, what does he go and do? He finds someone who owes him in comparison, very, very little. And says, You owe me. Pay up. And the man can't. He doesn't have the money. And so he begins to plead with him Have mercy on me. Give me patience. And what does this servant who has been forgiven so much do? He, he doesn't forgive him. He doesn't show him the mercy and grace that he has been shown. Rather, he puts him in prison. Now, when we read through the text, we're all saying as we read through it, what are you doing? Are you blind? Are you, are you just dense? What is going on? How could, you, how could you even possibly do that? How could you turn from being forgiven for so much debt and turn to someone who owes you so little and not have any pity, any mercy, any grace whatsoever that would overflow from the grace given to you so that you would put them in prison. How could you do that? But the reality of the parable is we're the servant. We're the servant, the unforgiving servant in the story. Because we've been forgiven far more than the servant in the story Has been forgiven, and yet how prone are we to be unforgiving? How prone are we knowing that all of our transgressions, all of them, all the ones that we have already committed, all the ones that we will commit today, all the ones that we will commit this week, all the ones that we will commit for however many days the Lord graces us on this planet, all of them forgiven. All of it done. The punishment for those sins was hell. Deservedly. And God in His grace looks upon us and says, I forgive you. I'm not just showing you patience. I'm giving you grace. I forgive you. Go your way. How can we turn to someone else and not forgive what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18 that's what he's saying here if he turns to you seven times saying I repent you must forgive because this is our identity now this is who we are this is what God has made us to be grace leads us to forgive again and again and again just as we've been forgiven Ephesians 4 verse 32 Paul writes be kind to one another forgiving one another As God in Christ forgave you. How are we to forgive? As Christ in God forgave us. That's how we forgive. This is what Jesus looks like. 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. Speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he was completely innocent. If there's anyone ever who was undeserving of any kind of wrath or wrong coming against him, it was Jesus. Yet, he was reviled. And Peter writes, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that is our hope as well. Is it hard to forgive it's impossible to forgive apart from God's grace working toward us and in us. And unless we are entrusting ourselves to Him, how will we forgive? Think about God's grace toward you. Think about God's grace toward you. Do You still wonder, are you still in awe of His grace grace. I fear sometimes that we sing songs like Amazing Grace or, or any other song about His grace so many times that we just get used to the words and lose the message. We forget. That doesn't mean we ought to stop singing. We ought to sing it over and over and over and over and over and we ought to read about His grace over and over and over and over and over. We never want to be callous to His grace or forget that His grace is Grace. His grace is amazing, and grace doesn't lead us to sin all the more. Rather, grace confronts sin in ourselves. As Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. Grace confronts sin in others. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Grace leads us to freely forgive others as one who's been freely forgiven to display the beauty of God's grace that's been toward us. His grace is amazing, and I would encourage you this morning, if you don't know him, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know his grace, please hear this again. His grace is amazing. God is gracious. He is a forgiver of sins, savior of sinners, of prostitutes, the prideful, of murderers, of homosexuals, of adulterers, of haters, of the lustful, of adulterers, of all types of idol worshipers. He is gracious. He alone Can save, and He alone forgives. I pray that you would know that. I pray that you would know His grace, that there is one who has come. When you think about the servant in Matthew 18, what happened to the debt? It was a debt. Something has to happen to the debt. What happened to the debt that He owed? And what happened in the story is the king paid it. The king took it. He bore the cost of the debt, even though the debt was toward him, himself. And in the same way, Jesus, our king, came and took our debt on himself. And now those who come to him and plead for mercy, repenting of their sins and following after him are freed. They receive mercy and grace. I would, I would urge you if you don't know him and right now you know you are still in your sins. The prayer room will be open. Wade and Terry Wilde will be there to pray with you go there as we sing in just a moment go there god is gracious god is gracious god is gracious go there and meet him and plead with him and find forgiveness as we go into a time where we take the lord's supper grace is why we take the bread and the cup because god came in the flesh And his body, his flesh was broken and his blood was spilled out. And he calls to us, he tells us, he gives us this... Reminder: Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember my grace. Do this to remember my body as you take the bread. Remember my body that was broken. And as you take the cup, remember my blood that was spilled for you. And so even as we prepare to take the bread and the cup, let's do it in a worthy manner. Let's remember and let's rejoice in his wonderful, amazing grace as we sing together and then as we partake together. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We love you. We praise you. Lord, we long to walk in light of your grace, Lord. How could we who have died to sin still live in it? And yet we battle. Help us, I pray, as your word tells us to put to death the deeds of the body and to walk in newness of life to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel gospel to which we've been called. Help us even in this time, Lord, by your grace, to receive your grace as we partake of the bread and the cup. Lord, if there's sin, unconfessed sin in our hearts, I pray that you bring about true repentance. If there's anyone here who doesn't know the wonderful grace of Jesus, Lord, would you help them to know that you coming you laying down your life was an offer, an invitation to them. I pray that they would be awakened to your goodness and your grace, your loving kindness, and that today would be the day of salvation, that they would be freed from their sin, that it would be true of them as your word says, there is now no condemnation for them because of Christ Jesus. For those of us who are in you, Jesus. We praise you for that truth. We praise you that your grace is not even comprehensible. You've freed us completely. We pray that we would take advantage of that freeing power of your grace and that we would walk in a manner that exalts your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.